It was good to see a bunch of you um, on Friday for um, Dennis Rosardo's. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the last name. Dennis Rosardo's funeral here. I appreciate you coming out to support uh, Liz during this this time of, of loss. Um, Liz is, you know, is a dear one to us. She's not a member of our congregation, but we consider her uh, one of our own. And uh, her husband had a brain tumor, which uh, he suffered with for more than two years. And she was very faithful to him during all of that time. And you were very faithful to her, uh, coming to her and relieving her. Uh, you know, as the only one at home, she was the only one that cared for him. And so many of you uh, gave her uh, thanks be to God for that. Our second reading this morning uh, is from uh, the book of Revelation. You know, I just find myself more and more attracted to the book of Revelation. You know, I think when I was growing up, it was it was very mysterious. It was treated in in uh, in, in a mysterious way. But uh, more and more time that I spend in it, I just see that the fulfillment of the promises that have been made throughout Scripture they come to pass there. Uh, and the vision that we have there is a vision of our own future, a vision uh, of the church uh, in its triumph, uh, in God's triumph. And so this is a vision uh, of the. Uh, that, that the Apostle John has of what's uh, going to be happening uh, in the future uh, when King Jesus is in his full power and in his full glory. So hear the word of the Lord. After this I look and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And whoever sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings. You are the eternal king who sits on the throne of David. And you are our good shepherd. And as part of God's plan and part of God's providence, the day will come when when we are fully under your care. When the things of this world will have passed away and the troubles of this world will be behind us. 
And we will be blessed by you in each and every moment. Lord, I pray that you would whet our appetite for that coming day of your complete and unrestrained kingship. Lord Jesus, I pray this day as we wait for that day that we would receive you in our hearts as king. Pray that you would reign in our lives. Pray that you would sit upon the throne of our hearts. Pray that we would acknowledge you as our maker and as our Lord. Pray that we would be quick to bow down to you in all that we say and do. Lord Jesus, may you be honored and glorified in all things, for your name is above every name, and at your name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is another sermon in our continuing series, a sermon on God's providence. As we said at the beginning, uh, God's providence, in a sense, is the second chapter of God's creation. So God makes all of the world, and he makes it according to his design, and he makes it the way he wants it. Uh, But then after God is done making the world, he doesn't just then walk away from the world, but he continues to govern the world. There is a a false theology called uh, deism that imagines that God makes the world uh, and then that he leaves it behind. That he's not really involved in the ongoing operations of the world. But what we see uh, represented in scripture, really from Genesis through Revelation, is that God is involved in the details uh, of, of his creation. And uh, in looking at God's providence in this series of sermons, we've been, we've been going from the biggest, uh, we're going to go down to the smallest. All right. So we talked about God's uh, providence in the making of creation. Uh, in providence, we are always asking the question, what is this for? What is God's purpose in this? And we talked about the purpose of all of creation. Uh, we also talked uh, about the purpose of the nation of Israel. Uh, among all of the people of earth, God uh, has put his favor upon the nation of Israel for certain purposes. Uh, and this, uh, and then last week we talked about some of the events uh, in the history of the nation of Israel. We talked about God's providential care of his people uh, in the Exodus and in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Uh, and what I want to do today is take a look at God's providence, God's purpose uh, in the kingship of Israel. In, in the kingship of Israel. Now let me read for you. Uh, the Belgic Confession. This is one of the uh, very early confessions in the Reformed tradition. Uh, this is from 1561, so this is older than the Westminster Confession. Um, and they have a little chapter in there on providence, and I think it provides a nice definition of providence. We believe that God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in the world without God's orderly arrangement. God's power and goodness are so great that God arranges and does his works very well and justly, even when the devils and the wicked act unjustly. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance 
but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father who watches over us with fatherly care so that not one of the hairs on our heads, not even a little bird, can fall to the ground without the will of the Father. A very good definition uh, of providence and also an indication of why it is that this doctrine of providence, this belief that God uh, governs things, is a comfort to us uh, because we live in a world full of troubles. So, this morning I want to talk about the kingship, but maybe, uh, you know, I should mention to you that you know, before there were kings uh, in Israel, there were judges. And in fact, uh, the people of Israel lived nearly a thousand years before they uh, before they had a king. Um, but there was this time of judges uh, after uh, the, the children of Israel get out of Egypt and they go through the Sinai, they get the law of God, and Joshua leads them into the land. Uh, there is this time of judges and there is the book of judges, which comes after the book of Joshua. Uh, which is very good reading, by the way. Well, maybe it's a little depressing reading too, but there are great stories in there, uh, many familiar stories uh, in the book of Judges. But what we see in the book of Judges is this cycle of God redeeming or rescuing his people out of troubled circumstances. They repent, they come back to God, things go well for a while, and then they get lax again, and they sin again, and then they're back in trouble again. And then they start crying out to God again, and God rescues them again. And so this cycle of sin and salvation, I think there are like seven full cycles in the book of, uh, the, in the book of Judges. There's a... Uh, a nice little synopsis of uh, uh, of the whole book in Judges chapter 2. It reads this way. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of oppressors. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judges. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. And so there's this cycle that goes on again and again uh, in, in in the book of Judges. Um there is probably the the most well-known story in the book of Judges is the story of, of Gideon raising an army to rescue the children of Israel from the oppression of the Midian and the Midianites and the uh, of, of the Midianites. And there's this uh, uh, they've been oppressed by the Midianites for seven years, and so Gideon raises an army. He puts out a call for people who want to defend Israel, and he raises an army of 32,000 people. And uh, God's not content with this army because, well, because it's too big. And so through a series of steps, God reduces 32,000 men to a mere army of 300 men. And then the 300 men go up against the Midianites and the Amalekites and obliterates them. Okay. Why does God do this? Well, we read in Judges 7, 2, that he does this lest Israel boast over me, Yahweh, saying, my own hand has saved me. All right. 
So if I were to win this battle in my own strength and my own competency, you know, I might think, well, you know, I won this because I am such a clever fellow, because I'm so good at what I do. And God wanted to make sure that the children of Israel understood that it was he himself who was rescuing them. And so he reduces the number to, well, to a ridiculous number. You can't win a war with 300 men, but God can win a war with 300 men. It's a way of keeping the children of Israel humble. One of the things that happens to us is that when we prosper, and it is appropriate to ask for God to prosper us, one of the things that happens to us when we prosper is we sometimes get, mm, what's the word, a little, a, a little too impressed with ourselves. We begin to think, you know, Look what I'm able to do. Look what I've accomplished. Look how far I've come. Aren't I a great fellow? And we forget our reliance upon God. And in our lives, we can have this same cycle that we see in the book of, in the book of Judges. You know, we cry out to God, oh Lord, my life is miserable. You know, I'm stuck here in, in poverty. I'm stuck here in debt. My, you know, my finances and my family and my health are a wreck. And you cry out to God and God rescues you and puts you back on your feet. And then when you start getting well and prosperous, you forget God. Well, you know what comes next then, right? <laughs> then God has to humble you again. All right? Which a mature Christian understands as part of the process, as part of the discipline that God gives to his people. Alright, so God disciplines us because he's our father and he loves us. And it's important for us in our relationship with God to always uh, maintain a, a humility. We, we can't have a relationship with God if, if we're cocky. All right, we can't have a relationship with God if we think that you know we're doing a God God a favor by showing up. The only way that we can have a relationship with God is when we recognize our complete dependence on God, and so every once in a while, God has to allow providentially in His fatherly care the humbling of His people. Okay, there is a you know a, a tradition. In Christian countries, it used to exist in this country, of times of prayer, of uh, times of fasting, or, or uh, fasting and repentance, and times of, of thanksgiving. I mean, we still have our national thanksgiving holiday, but it used to be that the, the president of the country would also call on people to, to pray and to fast when there were times of trouble. When things were, you know, when we were facing enemies abroad or maybe we were facing disease internally or strife of some kind, uh, we, the, 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 the president of the country would call on the country to abase themselves before God and plead his mercy. I think it's a good thing to do when troubles come up into our lives to go before God and humble ourselves before God and say, you know, Lord, we need you. We don't have any hope outside of you. But is it that you're trying to teach us in this moment that you brought me low? All right. Now, I'm not saying that every uh, hard thing that comes against you is designed to teach you 
or, or as a result of the sin in your life. It's possible that it's come against you for other reasons. But any time there is trouble in your life, it's appropriate to turn to God and say, Lord, what is it that I need to hear in all of this? In everything that we experience in life, we need to be humble, even while we ask for God's favor and God's prosperity. Notice what God says to Pharaoh. Do you remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the showdown between Pharaoh and Moses? And you remember the, the series of plagues that go on. God wants a very simple thing from Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the most powerful uh, king or the most powerful man on earth. Uh, Egypt is the most powerful empire on earth at that time. And God simply wants these people to get out of there, to be let loose so they can go out into the wilderness uh, to, to worship him. And then God sets up this series of uh, these series of plagues, ever heightening plagues, ever more terrible plagues. God has actually hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he will suffer and get beaten up more by God. And here's the reason why we see in Exodus ten three, God say directly to Pharaoh, "How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me?" purpose of the plague it's to free the children of israel but it's also to humble the most powerful and ruthless man on the face of the earth at that time how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me god drags it out i think he was having fun beating up pharaoh but he beats him up really well and then pharaoh knows who's boss but you know the same thing happens to the children of israel it isn't just that God humbles, you know, pagan nations. God also humbles his own people. You remember they get out there into the wilderness. And, you know, they have this amazing rescue. They see the destruction of this powerful army by supernatural forces in the sea. Uh, and, and they're fed and they're watered. And, of course, they just start grumbling and complaining because they don't have melons the way they used to have back in Egypt and we don't like the decisions that Moses is taking and and then for 40 years they have to wander in the wilderness the reason for that 40 years in the wilderness is laid out explicitly for us in Deuteronomy 8.16 where we read that all of these things Happen that God might humble you and test you. But here's the part that I like. To do you good in the end. Alright. Some of us don't like to be humbled. Well, probably none of us like to be humbled. But when we're humbled by God, it's always for our own good. All right. When trouble comes against the people of God, it will still be good for the people of God. All right. God humbles and tests His special people to do them good in the end. All right. Now let's talk about the kingship. That was all about the judges. God actually anticipates the possibility that Israel would receive kings from our reading in 1 Samuel uh, you know we, we we saw that God 
actually wanted to be the king of Israel himself so that there wouldn't be a king and that they would have judges. You know, they would be different from the other nations. The other nations had kings, but Israel would be the oddball nation that didn't have a king. Uh, and he would be directly their king. But God does, even before this time, does imagine what a king might look like in Israel. Um, and this is in Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you want to take a look at that passage. It's rather interesting, actually. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, God says this, When you enter the land of the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of all of it and settled it. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint you, uh, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. And now here are the list of qualifications. And you might want to think about these qualifications because these qualifications would apply to those that we appoint in a democracy over us as well. Number one, the king must not acquire a great number of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. There are kind of two concerns here. One concern, the horses, of course, are instruments of war. Okay, so one of the concerns uh, that God has for the kingship in Israel that it, is it, that it does not become dependent upon its own military power, but rather upon the power of God. But there's a second concern here that, that you're not going to go back to where you were before. Remember, the children of Israel had been in Egypt for generations, 400 years, okay? Longer than most of us have been in North America. Okay, very long time uh, they were there and they were acclimatized to that place. But God had made them a new people and said, no, I, I don't want you going back that place. Now here's something else. You must not take, he must not take many wives for himself or he'll be led astray. He must not accumulate, uh, accumulate large amounts of gold or silver. When he takes the throne of the kingdom, he's to write for himself a scroll, on a scroll, a copy of the law. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life. And then lastly, he is not to consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the left or to the right. There are some people who, when they get into power, they think, well, you know, those laws are just for you chumps. That's for little people to pay taxes. Big people don't pay taxes. Losers pay taxes. The king shall not consider himself better than his fellows, nor turn left or to the right from the law. The king is not to acquire many wives or his lives will be led astray. The king is not to accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Well, of course, you know exactly what happens. David has a whole bunch of wives. Solomon has even more wives. They got more gold than you can count. Mm. Now let's talk about Samuel's farewell speech. This is this little chunk that we read this morning. Samuel, of course, uh, you know, was the prophet there. And uh, the children of Israel, they want to have a king because, well, other people have a king and they want to be like other people. 
and Samuel warns them about this thing uh, and says that, you know, well, we're going to do this, but it's not really God's will. There's a problem with this. Samuel 12, 17 says, you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for the king. All right. So when the kingship is established in Israel, it is actually contrary to the will of God. And I'm saying this because I want to make a larger point, namely that part of what providence is, is this supernatural way in which God uses our mistakes and our sin and turns them to the good anyway. God didn't want Israel to have a king. God wanted to be their king. He wanted there to be a judge and there, there to be a prophet in the land. But he was going to be their king. Well, okay, now they've demanded a king. We give them a king. And God is even going to rescue this, this kingship, even though uh, it wasn't part of God's plan. I just want to make three little stops along the way. I want to stop with King David. I mean, I hope all of you love King David. I love King David. The great psalmist, right? He sings the psalms of God. So much of our worship has been um, come out of the heart of David. He was described as a man after God's own heart, even though he had too many wives, according to God's law. Even though he accumulated too many horses, even though he had too much gold and silver. But he was a man after God's own heart, and he sang the praises of God, which is really the purpose of all of this stuff. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. Psalm 135.3 All of creation exists to sing the praises of God. All of Israel exists to sing the praises of God. And now here in this king, this kind of illegitimate king, this king who shouldn't have been a king because really God didn't want him to be a king, well, this king is singing the praises of God. And God has turned something that was sinful and he turned it really into a blessing. And so we have all of the psalms. What I want you to see, though, in that little snippet there is singing the praises of God, for it is pleasant. The highest purpose of all of creation is to sing the praises of God, and for us it will be a pleasure. There are false pleasures and low pleasures, the pleasures of the flesh and the pleasures of the world, the pleasures that deceive, but our highest pleasure is singing the praises of God. And the more that we enjoy Him, the louder we sing. All right. God has designed us to enjoy Him and to sing His praises. So that's one little stop on that path. The second stop, of course, is Solomon. Solomon is born in sin. All right, Solomon... Uh, it is the son of Bathsheba. You remember the story of Bathsheba. This was not supposed to happen. All right, The kingship of David shouldn't have happened. And then within the kingship of David, there is this grievous uh, sin that also happens. And Solomon comes out of that. But even out of that 
even out of that, there is then the creation of the temple, the center of worship of Yahweh. And and the, the worship of Yahweh in the temple, we see from Solomon's prayer of dedication, this is Second uh, Chronicles chapter 6, is constantly focused on the, the sinfulness of man and their need of a merciful God. Let me read you three little snippets here. This is Solomon praying. Okay, so the temple has been built. It's this magnificent building, right? And Solomon leads in worship here, and he offers this prayer of dedication. Here's three little pieces. Listen to the pleas of your servant, in other words, the king, and of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, and listen from heaven, uh, listen from heaven, And when you hear, forgive. We're praying to God, we pray to God. Why? Because we need His forgiveness. God, help us. God, I've I've made a mess of my life. God, I did the things I shouldn't have done. Can you make something good out of this? Part of the comfort of the doctrine of providence is that God takes up our errors and turns them for our own good. If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you and they turn again and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear them from heaven and forgive their sins. This is what we need God for. Look, if we were sinless people, maybe, I don't know. If we were sinless people, well, we'd have a lot less trouble. Okay. World, our lives will be much smoother. So much of our prayers are appeals to God to help us uh, uh, to, to fix these things uh, that we have caused with our own sin. And then finally, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sins when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your people. All right. King David. Shouldn't have been king. God didn't intend for there to be a king. Well, there was a king. We're going to make the best of it. We're going to make him sing the praise of God. King Solomon, his son, born in sin. And yet, he creates this house of worship, which is this place where people can come to God and and call out to the name of God and ask for the forgiveness of their sins. But let's talk about the final king. King Jesus. Okay. Without the kingship in Egypt, there would, or in Israel, there would not have been King Jesus. No one would have cried out, have mercy on us, son of David, as we hear in Matthew chapter 9. Nathaniel would not have said, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. There would have been no, uh, no Jesus riding on that donkey, okay, on, on Palm Sunday. As a sign that he's a humble king. There would have been no foreign governor who would have nailed a sign over Jesus' head saying king of the Jews. There would have been no returning king of kings at the end of time. All of the kingly aspects of Jesus are designed to magnify the glory of God and especially the glory of his grace. 
And the final and the decisive revelation of God's grace, the revelation of the incarnate Christ, the anointed one of David, is the ultimate purpose of the monarchy in Israel. The reason that there is a kingship in Israel is so that Jesus can be uh, King Jesus. The ultimate purpose of the monarchy in Israel will be finally realized when Jesus sits on the throne of his father, King David. And that's sort of what we're seeing in our second reading there. A little glimpse of this in chapter 7. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is an image of the Messianic kingdom. It's coming. Okay, and we're going to be part of it. King Jesus will reign in the new Jerusalem and we're going to be there. And it's going to be sweet. That's what we're made for. For that day to be our reality, we need to make Jesus the king of our heart today. All right? The time of decision is in this life. There is no second chance after you die. Jesus needs to be your king now if he's going to be your king in the future. Let us pray. Father God, we love you. We pray this day that we would uh, worship you more fully. We thank you for King David and we thank you for King Solomon. We thank you for how they point forward to the coming of King Jesus. May we worship him. May he rule over us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us uh, confess what it is that we believe as Christians using the word.